Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Don't wait until you think you have the perfect plan. A lot of people get into this paralysis analysis situation where the deal is never quite right and it's never going to be. What you can do is get an 80 to 85% solution on your business plan, go forward and make some adjustments along the way and stay in the deal as opposed to not getting in the deal and then learning from that. Welcome to the best ever show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Ismail Reyes, also known as Ray. Ray is joining us from Orlando, Florida. He is the president of MI Real Estate, whose primary focus is acquisition and asset management of class B and C multifamily properties. He is a GP on 14 properties across five states and also an LP investor. Ray, thank you for joining us. And how are you today? I'm great, Ash. Thanks for having me. Looking it's forward. our pleasure, man. Hey, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yes. So I'm retired military. I did 28 years in the U.S. Army, retired as a lieutenant colonel. And Florida is home, as you mentioned. I really enjoy giving back. I've got my pension. I live well. But one thing I realize is that 
I want to give something back to others and I want to give back more to my family. So I looked at what I could do with my life and how I could help those that I want to help most. And this is the way to do it. Multifamily. I love it. How did you get into it? I was one of those kids that always loved Monopoly. Um, But I got into my military career and you're kind of busy, really busy sometimes after I had multiple deployments, multiple combat zones. And so you can only do so much and and you want to do more. And as we got into tail into my career, I realized there was another way to do it. I learned about syndications. I read Joe Fairless's book. I read other books. I've written a book. And I really wanted to do things in a way that could get others a head start on the multifamily business or just investing if they wanted to diversify and not have to worry about landlords, not have to worry about managing assets. We moved around all the time. It was very difficult. We had a single family property that we owned and the property manager quit. And I'm in Mexico City. So you have all these potential hurdles and syndication is a way that we could move forward and either as a passive investor and now as, as an active investor and really continue to scale this business and build wealth for myself, for my family, generational wealth, and for others that I can help along. Right. Can you give us the timeline of what came first? Did you educate yourself first and then get into those single families? Or did you get into the single families, then decided the property manager quit, this sucks, educate yourself and then get into syndications? How did that work? I've done a lot of self-educating. I started educating myself And really, I became an accidental landlord, but it wasn't really by accident because I knew I wanted to get into this business. I just didn't realize when you first get in, it it sounds like it's very easy when you just buy a property and you do this and you do that. And then you start realizing all the issues that come up. So I had a good sense of how to do it. But when you really do the first one is when you start realizing and then you throw the extra wrench of having to move around and not really controlling your own time. And you really had to figure out a better way to do things. So I would say I self-educated, started working on single family. And then as soon as I learned and networked on how to do multifamily, I started passively to make sure I understood the business. And then I moved into the active side once I retired out of the military. What was your first multifamily deal? The first multifamily deal was a passive deal in Birmingham. I partnered with Michael Blanc on a deal. I essentially used it as a launching platform, as I explained, to be able to go active. But I was actually on my way overseas for two years. And I realized that that was the only way that I was going to be able to invest in multifamily at the time. So I learned the markets. I picked a partner that I felt I was comfortable with that knew their business. And then I figured out, okay, what markets am I looking at? And what markets are my preferred partners investing in? And we came up with Birmingham. Why Birmingham? At the time, and even still, it's a very good market. It's got good value. This was 2016, and it was on an upward trajectory. We look at things, now I've kind of defined them a little bit more, but essentially you want to look at the economy of a place. You want to look at where it is on the real estate cycle. It was in the absorption phase where it was starting to move up, and there was a lot of activity, and unemployment was low. So there were a lot of positive trends that kind of pointed to that place. And I had others that I was looking at. But that was one that coalesced with a partner that I was comfortable working with. And Ray, how did you put together your first active deal? Can you walk us through the partner, the acquisition, the investors? Yeah. So it's real simple. And I tell people all the time how to short circuit into this business. That's what I did. I essentially started looking for a partner that could bring me into their deal. So I was essentially looking to buy into an existing network of an operator network. So 
I had some money that I put together. I sold one of my properties and I essentially started going to conferences. And when I met people, you know, that I was comfortable with and we started talking about potential business, I was very willing to say, listen, I've got some money that I'm willing to put in as risk capital for the right deal with the right partners. Please consider me. And essentially about six months to a year later, I get a call from one of those individuals saying, hey, I remember we talked and we were looking at potentially partnering. Are you still interested? And I said, well, tell me the deal. Show me the deal. And I got into a deal in Tampa with them. And essentially, I put in some risk capital. And my goal was to raise capital on the deal as well as kind of where I wanted to focus my business. But I ran into some hurdles. But at the end of the day, you have to start incrementally moving your business forward and create some goals. So did I answer every part of that question or was it something? Yeah, listen, I love your hustle. So when you say risk capital, is that earnest money? That was earnest money on the deal. So I said, listen, I'm going to buy into this deal with this risk capital and allow me to also do other things. I want to do other things on this deal. I want to learn and grow with the team and essentially be able to get in there and and do some more in-depth work. So yeah, absolutely. Ernest money. You were a co-GP on that deal. I was a co-GP on that deal. Yes. And what were your other roles and responsibilities that you took on? Essentially raising capital was a big one and part of the asset management and really just being on all the meetings, participating, providing value wherever I could. If there were some questions, we had essentially had some people that were lead in those roles, but I was able to potentially add some value there. And then as part of that, also looking at potential future deals and underwriting deals. So I learned how to underwrite. And as part of even that deal, then with that team, looking at potential future assets. Do you remember the numbers on that deal? It was a 56 unit uh, deal in Tampa. We bought it at about 55 a door. It's hard to believe, but this was 2019 and you could still get things in the 60s and 50s. So around a $3 million purchase? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, so initially it was supposed to be a portfolio of 81 units. One of the pieces of that portfolio fell off and we were left with that 56. And essentially it was two properties very near each other. It's been a while, but yeah, we actually just sold that one this year. We sold that. We just about doubled investor money. I want to say a 1.9 or 2.0 return. So it was kind of nice. What did that sell for per door? It sold for 119 a door, I want to say. So when you subtracted everything out, it ended up being about basically double your money for investors in a little under three years. So it was a very good deal. That's a good win. Yeah. And how did you recruit investors on that deal? It was tough. And that's where I ran into my biggest hurdles on that deal was I was actually still on active duty. I had just come back from overseas and essentially where I worked, I didn't have access to a phone. I couldn't bring in my phone. It was a government computer. That's kind of a hard thing to overcome when you're trying to talk to investors. So I honestly didn't raise any capital on that deal. So when I bought into that deal, that was extra. This is what I wanted to do. But what I was able to do was create my processes understand how to get my investor list going. And one thing I was able to do was I brought in another general partner that was willing to come in with $300,000 to kind of close that deal out. So technically not a passive investor, but certainly did bring in some capital that kind of closed that deal out. So it was kind of nice, but I realized, and that's when I decided I really needed to pick my poison. Was I going to stay in and try to get a colonel in the army or was I going to get out and do this thing full time? And I decided to get out. And so that was it. I couldn't do both. And I realized that just based on my type of business. There are other businesses that are very easy to mix the two. Mine was not one of them. After you closed on that first deal, you've got to be feeling pretty good. You brought an investor to the table. What was your next deal? 
The next deal was another deal in the Tampa area. It was in a place called Apollo Beach. And this was a B-class property. And I want to say it was 59 units. So a little bit bigger, not much bigger, still in the 50s. And it was with the same group. We got that other deal. I was able to raise some capital on that deal, actual passive investor capital. So I was happy about that. And we still own that property. Consistently stays full and very successful property sitting on a long-term debt now, which is nice. And essentially the team brought it. We underwrote it together. And my piece of that was obviously facilitating asset management and generally bringing in capital. That's kind of where I focus. Honestly, Ash, I tell you, this is something that I like to do. I like talking to brokers, but I'd much rather other people talk to brokers and bring me good deals. Let them filter through that. Let them do initial underwriting and then bring me in. And that's kind of where I've kind of focused my business. And I think that's one thing that I tell people. There's a lot of operators out there. There's like, I can't wait. I'm going to find my deal. I'm going to find my deal. It's like, listen, just get into a deal, whether you find it or whether someone else finds it. Get into a deal. Otherwise, you could be talking about this next year. It's a lot of competition out there. Everybody's looking for deals and brokers have their preferred operators. So I, I like to get out a little bit further and let others find the deals. How do you teach your team to penetrate brokers? You have to build a relationship with them. You have to provide feedback for what they give you. Take a look at the deals, underwrite the deals, tell them this is a good deal. And here's why I like this deal or tell them why it falls outside your criteria, but give them something because they have to go back to that seller and provide input that they're getting from potential buyers. So whether you are actively going to buy or not, they will take that input and it'll also help them continue to maintain the sellers informed of what's going on. And if there's some good feedback that you can provide, maybe it's something that they're willing to take back to the seller and say, hey, I'm getting a lot of friction on this price, or I'm getting a lot of friction on the timeline. Whatever that is that's really preventing you from making that deal work, it's something to help the broker go back to that buyer and maybe adjust that so that the deal will work. Right. What were the numbers on that second deal? Oh, good question. And you said you locked in long-term debt. What does that look like right now? We locked it in at just under four and it was a seven-year term. And essentially because it was a stabilized deal, it wasn't a value add. So we did some basic work to it, but essentially we got through that pretty quick and was able to lock in that long-term debt, which is kind of nice right now as debt is going up on every one year. So it's kind of nice to lock that one in. I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head. I want to say it was in the 80s. It was a B-class, nice area, but I can't remember off the top of my head. And what was the value add on that property? Just making the property look like a resort-like property. It was already a B-class, but there were some things that we were able to add to it. For example, it didn't have a screen back door. If you're in Florida and you don't have a screen, you may not be outside for long even if it's cool and it's nighttime because you do got the critters, right? So providing some livable space outside of that. The other thing that we did was we cleaned up. It actually is right on the river, actually access to the water, not a river, access to the water. And we cleaned up some of the general areas where essentially boats can park and actually come in. If you're actually on a boat and you want to just park there, we receive some extra income from that. And it's another amenity that we were able to add. So really just making it like a resort, property, which the location was perfect for it. And because you're not dealing with C-class workforce housing, it doesn't have the fluctuation. In fact, there's a lot of retirees there. So it doesn't have the fluctuation that a lot of other potential properties have if you really have to depend on people receiving income. So it was nice to have. Right. 28 years in the military, 
thank you and your family for your service and your entire family's sacrifice as well. But I got to imagine you're a big systems guy. What systems have you put in to your real estate operation? Yeah, I think the biggest one, and we continue to refine, is essentially a lessons learned. The military is big on when you do something. First of all, the idea that you're going to have a foolproof plan for anything is foolish. Things happen, life happens, world happens. And you have people that inject into things that you can't control. So what you can do is you can kind of plan as good as you can, but get into something. Don't wait until you think you have the perfect plan. A lot of people get into this paralysis analysis situation where the deal is never quite right and it's never going to be. What you can do is get an 80 to 85% solution on your business plan, go forward and make some adjustments along the way and stay in the deal as opposed to not getting in the deal and then learning from that. So what we do is after we do an acquisition, we come back and we go, okay, not just right after the acquisition, but when we fully exit out of a property and just go back and say, okay, what did we do well? How do we ensure that we continue to do these things and how do we systemize that? And then what did we need to improve on and essentially provide some recommendations? It's very easy to say, oh, we didn't do this right or we didn't do that right. But when you provide that kind of input, what can you change and provide that recommendation so we can potentially implement some things and make the deals better going forward and adjust that? So it's all about standard operating procedures. It's all about action. You have to take action. Otherwise, it's never going to be perfect. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years, and he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at passiveinvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. Passiveinvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Right. What's an example of a mistake made and a debrief where you learn some valuable lessons? Yeah, I think one of the biggest mistakes we've had to accommodate and overcome is when you're getting into deals and you don't have a good enough timeline and you don't have extensions built into a deal to allow you to really not be backed into a corner into a deal. So you've got your standard 30-day due diligence, you have your standard 30-day for financing, and then maybe you get yourself another 15-day extension. 
Okay. Well, that's great. For first of all, have you built that into your contract? So those are automatic when you need them. Or are you going to wait until you no longer have those or you're at the tail end of your final extension and then you're kind of stuck because you got to go back to that seller and essentially ask for an extension. And the seller is probably going to ask for additional earnest money, maybe change the price on you. So one of the things that we've learned is if a seller is not willing to have some built-in extensions there, and there may be a cost to those, that's okay. But something that we are comfortable that we're going to have enough runway to close these deals out and some additional time in case we need it, then maybe the timing is not right with the seller. Maybe we need to go wait and see if the seller is willing to accommodate us later. And we've actually had sellers come back to us after the deal didn't go the way they really wanted to and come back and say, hey, we're willing to consider these extra extensions on a deal. So what does the ideal contract look like today in terms of timeline? It's changing. Honestly, it's changing with the time. I would say one of the biggest things. So let's go with the basics, right? We need at least 30 days due diligence. We need at least 30 days to 60 days for financing. And that'll take you through, hopefully through the entire deal, getting the debt and the equity side. So I would say you need at least 60 to 90 days as kind of a standard. If you can get closer to 90, that's better. It really depends on the asset. It depends on how much capital you may be sitting on, how much dry powder. So that kind of makes a difference as well. So I'd say 90 days. And then the other key to what I feel is changing now in this market is initially you'd go into a deal and you essentially were going in hard with your money up front. In other words, if you wanted to get this deal, it's a seller's market. You had to come in and say, hey, 50, 100, 150,000 hard, depending on the size of the deal. And you're kind of stuck with that. So you first, it is risky. So you have to have people on your team and you have to have done the evaluation and be comfortable that you're going to be able to execute, one. But two, that creates a problem because right now you're in a floating interest rate situation where, especially on the value add, where you're having to do essentially bridge loans to get to that fixed loan later. And the Fed funds rate is pushing up the mortgages. So how do you insulate yourself as a buyer? Well, one, you can ensure that that hard money is not going hard right away. Maybe you do it right after due diligence. That'll give you a better idea. And if you're doing your work right, you're getting ahead on that loan as well. So you're getting that stuff locked in and still giving yourself some flexibility to go back to the seller at that point, since you don't have any hard money to go back to the seller and say, hey, race just went up. We really need to look at this price point in order for it to work because it's no longer working based on our initial assumptions. So that's one thing that I think is changing is that money is no longer going hard on a lot of these deals. What I haven't seen yet, but I think we're getting to is some sort of financing contingency, maybe some caps built in so you can say, hey, I'm in this deal up until this kind of rate. And then once we go beyond that, if something changes, we need to be able to walk away on this. So that's a little bit tougher. But I think we're kind of getting there as we continue to adjust a little bit upwards and sellers aren't able to get the price points that they were looking for. And a lot of sellers are retrading. We're in a deal right now where we had a $1.5 million deduction in price point simply because we went back to the seller and said, hey, these numbers, based on where we were estimating to acquire this at from an interest rate perspective, it's not going to work for us anymore. And the seller understood that and we were able to get that. Interesting. Do you ever build in paid extensions? Yes, we have. We'd rather not. We'd rather get them free. But if you want to ensure that you have your timeline and the seller is kind of pushing you on that, then that's how to kind of get over the hump. Say, listen, if we need this time, I'm willing to pay for it. But it's certainly just additional earnest money. It isn't additional price. If you don't lock those in, 
and you're working later, you may be looking at additional earnest money and additional price. So yes, we have done that. Essentially, right at that 60-day period, we essentially could lock in another 30 days. If we only had 15, lock in an extra 15 for a cost. Definitely want to do that. Yeah. Ray, what's an example of a deal that you lost money on? And what was your lesson learned on that? I had to think about that. I listened to your show, and I know that's one of the, the questions. It was one of my first deals that wasn't a single family. And even though categorically it still counts, it was a duplex. I still remember, I just come back from overseas and I had some money. I'm like, I need to get into a deal. And so we went in and we were looking for a duplex. I was in San Antonio and we bought a single family home that had a mobile home with it. It was on over half an acre. And I still remember it. And the numbers worked. So we got the numbers. We're looking, okay, this is how much rent, expenses, except for we didn't anticipate that the septic system was going to go bad. And we had a septic system that was essentially a standard septic system. And when we tried to get a new one put in, the county changed the regulation and we were not able to put a regular septic system in anymore. We had to put in what was called an aerobic septic system, which essentially took away the space that we had available for that mobile home. So we essentially had to go from from two properties to one income had to move that thing. We were able to negotiate with a person that installs the aerobic systems and say, we will trade this mobile home. You take it, you install the system for us. So we were to kind of give it away for the service of putting in a septic system. But needless to say, my numbers didn't work that much anymore. So I was in the red several years on that. It wasn't on a ton of money, but when I, when I started looking at it, it was probably about 10,000 over the life of that. $10,000 that I lost. But more importantly, when you're trying to build your business, That doesn't sound like a lot. And frankly, it isn't, even in the terms of when it was. But when you're trying to build a business and your first real foray into, quote, multifamily, you're losing money. It kind of takes away some of the motivation. So I kind of took a step back and it kind of hurt me from that perspective more than anything else. I'd say I lost about 10 grand just trying to recover from the loss of one household. Yeah, that's a tough one. It's hard to anticipate that. Right. What does your team look like today? Do you still look for operators that are best in class wherever you go? Are you a one-man shop or do you have permanent partners? Great question. After I retired, I was kind of working independently, essentially joining with groups. I worked with one group, the group that I started with. We did multiple deals there. And now since then, I started working on separate deals. But one thing that I realized is your time that you have starts to shrink very quickly the more deals that you have. And right now, actively, we have just under 10 deals that we're asset management on, and your time is limited. So I've actually grown my team. We now have a company, it's called The Admirable Group. It's theadmirablegroup.com. If you want to find it, essentially, it's five partners that have done multiple deals together that we've joined forces to go after deals. It allows us to raise additional capital, allows us to do multiple assets and not feel like we are so constrained. So what I like to do in my business, I really like talking to people and I like helping those that are getting started. So it got to the point where I couldn't do that anymore. So bringing essentially five additional partners is now allowing me to come back to what I really enjoy, which is talking to folks that want to do this business. And is this an ad hoc group where if one person finds a deal, they structure it based on that deal or was it always you guys are equal partners on every deal? Good question. No, there's flexibility built in. So we have five partners and essentially on any particular deal, a partner can decide they don't want to get into that deal. 
but it's a decision that they have to make before we consider bringing in another potential joint venture partner onto that deal. So they essentially have to say no, and then we can adjust from there. They've already bought into it as part of being in, in other deals. They're part of that team unless they decide they don't want to do one. And what we do is we create an operating agreement for each one. It's essentially a series LLC with children underneath it. And each one of the acquisitions is a different child and it has its own operational agreement and terms that we abide by. But essentially, we always give first pick of the litter, if you will, to the partners that are on the deal with us now. And does each partner bring an equal amount of capital to the deal? No, it depends on the deal and it depends on where that partner is. So we essentially have minimums. So we do have that. We say, listen, you need to buy in with at least 15, 20, 30 grand, depending on what kind of leverage we need to essentially partner on a deal on a syndication. So we'll start from there and then partners can bring in extra if they want to bring in extra. So there's a minimum, but you could bring in extra. And then we create essentially a percentage of the company is what they're buying into. So depending on how much they provide, they get additional parts of that company going forward, but a minimum amount that they have to come in on. Yeah, this seems like it can get very complex. You have very specific roles for each partner, I'm assuming? Yes. And essentially what we've done is we built in essentially a lead player on each of our acquisitions. We all do asset management. We all meet on all of the different deals, but essentially a different person of the team is leading the project, if you will, on that and leading that deal. So it it has created the ability for us to be able to work different ones without everybody being completely focused on the minutia on one deal. Somebody just runs that. So I don't think it's been complicated. I think it's, it's actually helped. Now, it depends on who your team members are. All the members of my team have advanced degrees. They've been in this business a long time. So it's not like you're hiring to do only one particular thing. These are all operators that have decided, hey, the best way moving forward is to form this entity and allow us to get into bigger deals, into more deals with more leverage. I got to share a story. So I had two partners on a deal and I ended up doing all the work, but one of my partners was equal to me. I brought the capital. I managed the deal. I do it all, right? And I'm not complaining. That was the deal that I made. I stuck by it, but it wasn't a fair deal. And it didn't cause friction, but it makes me not want to do another deal with that same structure. Have you had that where one person does an inordinate amount of work? Yeah, not in my particular group that we have now, but I partner on a couple of deals where once you get through the acquisition that some people participate less. So yes, it has happened. And unfortunately, especially when you're raising capital, That's part of what groups are bringing in. You can't not work with them because they raise less capital than you wanted them to or you needed them to. It's just the business that we're in. So you just have to keep that in mind for the next time. And then maybe the next time you just don't get into a deal with them. But it's like you said, Ash, you signed up to something, you're going to hold your end of the deal. But then moving forward, you work with a different group or maybe not work with one particular individual, if you will. This is very much a people game where you're networking with individuals and Sometimes personalities clash. It happens to me. I'm a very strong-willed individual, and I have a certain way that I like to do things, and I'm very transparent with people that I'm potentially partnering with, and I say, listen, this is who I am, and this is what I bring to the deal, but listen, I like to be transparent with people that I work with. I don't like the games. If something isn't going right, I'm going to tell you. So I'm very forthcoming, and some people, maybe they don't like that. Maybe they like a more softer approach. So you have to also keep that in mind, but you have to do your best guess. You vet people, you network, and you ask others, have you ever worked with an individual that you're potentially working with? And so you're able to kind of maneuver and, and figure out 
who are potentially good players and good partners. It's never going to be perfect. You just have to make it work. Yeah. Right. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? I think the best advice is get started. Just get started. Don't wait for the perfect opportunity. It's not out there. And it may be a fantastic opportunity, but it won't be 100% perfect and you're going to miss out. So I think that's the biggest one is there's too many people that are just waiting for the unicorn. It's not there. Ray, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yes. All right, Ray, let's do it. What's the best ever book you recently read? I read Who Not How by Dan Sullivan. I love that book. Yeah, it was a game changer for a lot of people. Great book. Ray, what's the best ever way you like to give back? I actually sponsor children through Children's International, children's.org. I've been sponsored children in the Dominican Republic and Colombia. I like to give to people that don't have the opportunity. I think there's a lot of people that waste opportunities and then there's none that never had it. So I, I look for that. We're looking to also do some donations this year to Shriners Hospital. And Ray, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? And also tell us about the book you mentioned. Yeah, so the book's very easy. It's B-L-U-F, Bluff. The bottom line up front about investing in multifamily properties. And you can find that on Amazon. So if you just put Bluff Amazon, it'll show up. And you can find me at IsmailRayReyes.com or MIRealEstate.us. Ray, I got to thank you for your time today. 28 years in the military. Again, thank you for that service. Starting out with single family homes, educating yourself, getting into syndications, and teaching other people from your lessons learned on how to fast track their way to get to where you're at. Again, thank you for your time. Thank you, Ash. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Awesome. Best ever listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoy this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share the podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.